He's been described as one of the most significant songwriters in the whole international Christian music field. His work has been sung throughout the world, from underground churches to the enthronement of the Archbishop of Canterbury. His songs are loved by both contemporary worship movements and mainstream churches. In fact, his most popular hymn, In Christ Alone, has been in the top ten hymns in the UK, the US, Canada and Australia for years. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of Christ Alone, co-written by my guest today, Stuart Townend. Stuart, very lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much, Alison. You're very welcome to The Word, the series where we invite our guests to talk about their lives through the lens of their favourite passages from the Bible. Each of the biblical passages will be read by the actor David Suchet. Stuart, in Christ Alone, perhaps your most famous hymn, and I believe it was just pipped to the top spot by How Great Thou Art in a BBC survey of most popular hymns. So what inspired you to write that hymn? Not, of course, How Great Thou Art. I wish I had written How Great Thou Art. Um, a mutual friend introduced me for the first time to Keith Getty, who um, you know, I didn't really know anything about him. I knew that he was from more of a classical musical background. I knew he was from Northern Ireland, and I knew that he wrote melodies. So we had a coffee together. He said, oh, I'll send you some melodies. So I uh, went away. A few days later, I got this CD in the post that had these melodies, and he was just playing the melodies on the piano with accompaniment. And the first melody I heard, I thought... Actually, this is a really good melody. It had a sort of a lilt, a Celtic sort of lilt to it, very singable, very memorable. And I thought, this is this is a really good melody. Now, I do listen to a lot of melodies. I get sent a lot of things from people. But this kind of was different. So I kind of thought, what is this about? And uh, actually got Keith on the phone, talked a little bit to him, and thought, actually, this... It had a kind of a timeless quality, the melody, I thought. Actually, maybe... It needs a kind of timeless theme, and so automatically I was thinking, let's go to the birth, life, death, resurrection of Christ. So I began to write these lyrics, and it takes me a long time to write lyrics. So I tried lots of different ideas, fill pages and pages, virtually books of ideas, and then begin to coalesce it and compress it. And as I was kind of writing it, it definitely took on a form. And uh, I remember getting quite emotional, thinking there's, there's something... Uh, inspired by the melody, there's something to be said here. Do you think that's why it's touched and inspired so many people? Yeah, it's hard to know. Sometimes songs just kind of take on an energy. And, and what's interesting about In Christ Alone, you say, is it is the most popular of the songs um, that I've been involved in. And I get more feedback on that song than all the other songs I've written put together. And some of the stories that come out, you know, really are very moving about people going through very difficult times, through loss, through great times of pressure in their lives, 
they find something in the meaning behind the song. And yet that hymn has had its controversy too. I know in particular one of its lines is the wrath of God being satisfied. And some people refuse to sing it, some hymnals refuse to print it. I wonder why you wrote that line, the wrath of God being satisfied, because it seems a very strange phrase to use in the 21st century. I suppose in some senses it, it does seem a little strange. I mean, I think it is part of our understanding of why Christ came and why it was necessary for God to sacrifice himself in Christ to pay the penalty for our sin. And it's, a, it's an understanding, it's, a, it's an image that you will see actually throughout the Old Testament where actually sacrifices were made. It's that sense of sacrifice of paying a penalty for the wrongdoing. And I think we all have a, a, an innate understanding that when somebody does something wrong, there is a penalty to be paid, and that's all part of our justice system, etc. Now, some people struggle with some of the terminology that's used of paying the penalty. I suppose it's worth saying that, that it, is, it has been part of this historic understanding of what the sacrifice and the cross of Christ means for many centuries. Some people are questioning it in recent years. Certainly when the, the song was first written, I didn't have any comeback from it or people objecting to it or whatever for, for a number of years. So it wasn't written to be controversial. It actually probably, when it was first written, which is probably about 20 years ago, 21 years ago, it was just seen as part and parcel of our understanding of the cross. So why not let people change it and <laughs> sing what they want to sing? I well, mean, some people want to change it to the love of God was magnified. That seems pretty harmless if you hadn't any controversy at the beginning. And yeah. why are you sticking to your guns? No, there are lots of, there are lots of different versions. In fact, I've, I've stood in churches and heard different versions being sung uh, has been quite a surprise to me, knowing that none of them actually have had permission because uh, of the copyright situation. I suppose the first issue is to actually begin to allow changes in, in copyrighted songs is fraught with difficulties, apart from anything else. Actually, if you begin to say, well, I'd like to take this and I'd like to put my version of my understanding of theology in it, then you actually begin to get then multiple different versions and you open the door for people to say, I don't like that bit of the song, I'm going to change that. So there are very difficult copyright issues to do with that. And I think even from that point of view, I think it's better to go, actually, no, we need to keep it as it is. If somebody wants to sing something different or write something different, a different song, then they should do that. But I think to begin to change those words that somebody has written that are in copyright actually is fraught with difficulty. Or, or is it that you think that people get an understanding of their faith or get their theology from what they sing these days and therefore it's important in that sense? Yes, that's true as well. And I, I, think, I, I think I've tried to take a position where I don't want to be confrontational. Quite often I meet people and they want to have a verbal fight about it. And I don't see a lot of point with that for me engaging with that because lots of people have already done that. There are reams and reams of people talking about their particular positions. And my position has been to say, I think this is true. I don't think it's the totality of what the sacrifice of Christ means, but I think it's an important part of it. So I think this is true. I can understand other people take different positions, and that's fine. And people can write songs about other positions and other aspects, that's fine. But I think to retain the integrity of this is to say, I believe this is true. If you don't believe it, then please don't sing it. That's fine. I wouldn't insist on anybody singing it, but I don't think we can go into the realms of then going, whatever perspective you would like to bring, come and change the song so that it's, so that it's different. I think at that point 
point you have to say, no, keep the integrity of the song and then, you know, sing what you want to. Or if you want to, when you sing that song, you can not sing that line and then go on to the next verse or you can ignore the song completely. Well, let's go back to your early days for for a moment then. And you grew up as the youngest of four children in, yeah. in a Christian family in West Yorkshire. Your father was a, a Church of England uh, vicar. Did you have a very religious upbringing? Was it a very religious household? I suppose you could say it was a religious upbringing. I'm, I'm cautious of the word religious because it sounds like it's strict and rather serious. And it wasn't like that at all. It was great fun. Clearly, there was a Christian focus in that I grew up probably knowing the Bible quite well from quite an early age, something actually I'm very grateful for because it has helped to inform my writing as I've gone on. But it was, no, it was, it was a, a family that was, was full of, uh, of life with four boys. There's a lot of football being played. There's a lot of fun. There's a lot of teasing going on. And as the youngest of four, I probably was the object of most of the teasing. But there was a lot of music going on because actually all four of us were interested in music and three of us played music. So actually, as kids, three of us used to go on and play in church. Oh, I used to sing harmonies and used to sing in the car and uh, used to go, actually, as time went on, when I was probably about nine or ten or eleven, uh, as the youngest, the three of us uh, would go and, and play in different churches. And, so what and made you start to write Christian songs then? I suppose, I, I mean, we were we were singing our own songs as we went, the three of us, Phil, Ian and, and me, and they were doing some writing. So they were writing songs about Christianity. They were writing songs about uh, walking with Christ. Not necessarily worship songs, but more performance songs, songs that told the story or whatever. And uh, so we would do those. I never really got involved in the writing side, probably because they wouldn't listen to my ideas. You know, they were a little unformed at that early age. And so I didn't really think about writing. It was actually only when I came to university in Brighton, uh, came to Sussex University, and got involved in a large church down in Brighton. I was the kind of music director the MD for a kind of worship band, was playing with some great musicians. I was working with a guy called David Fellingham who kind of mentored me and helped me understand in a better way perhaps what contemporary worship was about and leading people in worship. And I remember quite often thinking, oh, it would be great for us to be able to sing a song about this aspect of God's character right now. And uh, thinking, I can't think of a song that says what I want to say. And I remember saying that to Dave one time, and he just turned to me and said, well, write one then. And off you write went. Write it. And so, you know, I wasn't intending to do it. It wasn't something I decided would be my career. It didn't come up in my career's advice at school, you know, to be a hymn writer. But Dave said, just write. So I began to write. And it, it just, you know, I learnt my craft, writing some terrible songs that... Um, Gradually, I learned how to do it a bit better so it would work for congregations. And over time, yeah, they seemed to, to be received well. And as we travelled more, we began to travel and lead worship and do music in different churches, initially in the UK, but then further afield. They began to kind of take on some momentum and and were being embraced by the wider church. And then in 1985, I believe, your father died. Mm -hmm. He was um, involved in a motor accident. How did that affect your writing, or did it? Well, in, in a way, that was pre-my writing, because I was still... That was my final year at university, so I hadn't really written at that point. I did write a bit of poetry to try and express something. But I think when something like that happens, it stays with you, it becomes part of who you are, an understanding of the process or, or an observation of the process of grief stays with you. And I suppose it's been interesting, not in a conscious way, but in a subconscious way, perhaps, 
sometimes I find I'm writing, even when it's songs of joy and songs of, of peace and hope, I write, I think, quite often with the perspective of, of recognising our own mortality. And I, I, you know, think I'm not sure, but I think in some part that may relate to the fact that at a relatively early age I experienced a very strong process of grief as I lost my dad. And uh, to see, actually, life is short. Life can be taken away in an instant. And um, to see the, 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 the eternal perspective or the perspective of the preciousness of life as a result. Which brings us to your first reading. You've chosen Psalm 23, verses 1 to 6. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me lie in pastures green. He leads me by the still, still waters. His goodness restores my soul. Trust in you alone, and I will trust in you alone. For your endless mercy follows me, your goodness will lead me home. Why did you choose that psalm, the psalm that you have set to music, which we've just heard? It's a very popular psalm. It's a psalm that is read out or sometimes sung because there are various versions, musical versions of Psalm 23 on different occasions. And quite often it is a psalm of comfort. The context, I suppose, of writing it, again, was, was something quite unintentional. I actually remember when I wrote it, I was working on another song and it was taking an awfully long time and I was getting quite frustrated with the song that I was trying to write and it was it was it was proving very difficult to get the right shape and what to say and i remember just being really fed up with writing it and i kind of thought oh, i'll take a break for 10 minutes and just i actually had the bible there and happened to turn to psalm 23 and it's one of these occasions when you know you just turn to it and you you look at it and a melody idea came pretty much instantly it was it seemed very clear how to shape this song and um in about 10 minutes i'd written it and, uh, of course, the irony is that the song that I was spending hours and hours, days and days working on, nobody could ever remember now, whereas this version of Psalm 23 seems to have kind of got into a lot of churches and it is still being used quite a lot. I suppose the, the particular perspective that really spoke to me about Psalm 23, about what it is, is, as I say, it's quite often used as a comfort 
psalm to comfort us in grief and comfort us, you know, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But I, I picked up a slightly different nuance, I suppose, which is that actually it's calling us to walk. It's calling us to trust. And therefore I wrote this chorus that says, I will trust in you. So actually it's a faith-filled psalm. It is saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But it was saying, I will not fear. I will not because you are with me. I will do this. I will follow you wherever it is you are leading. And I thought it's good to bring that perspective of the psalm out, that actually this is a call to faith. It's a call to walk through the difficult times. Have you ever found that call to faith difficult to live out those words of Psalm 23, that the Lord is your shepherd, you'll lack nothing, you'll fear no evil? You, You mentioned your father's death and the impact that had on you, the realisation of how temporary things can be. Have I found that difficult? Yes, many times. And it is very difficult. And you can say those words and they can feel hollow and say, I feel like I lack a lot. It says I lack nothing. What has got you through then? Well, as I discovered, I think, through my dad's death, sometimes you can try and reason it. Sometimes you can say, well, he's in a better place. Sometimes you can say, well, obviously God knows what he's doing. But sometimes you just need to walk you just keep going and when you do that in a sense you can't reason it out and I'm quite a sort of a reasoning sort of person I like to think things through I like to be quite logical and uh, sometimes logic doesn't help in this so you just go well this is it this is the process and you find people and I'm, I'm very aware of it I see it quite often people are going through a grieving process and Christians sometimes think well let me pray for you then it will be better and the fact is quite often You can be prayed for, and that's wonderful, but it isn't better. You don't solve grief. You don't resolve it with a prayer. You walk through it, and through it, you become a deeper, more sensitive person, I think, and perhaps somebody who is more aware of what it means to rely on God. And so, in a sense, I look at that process. I'm going through, in some ways, a similar process at at the moment because I've got three older brothers and uh, one of them at the moment has been diagnosed with esophageal cancer and uh, it's uh, not operable and uh, so he's he's really struggling at the moment and uh, as people who who know about these things may already have have gathered that the um, prospects are not good and we're praying that he will recover but we don't know what will happen and in some ways, you know, again, it's something ultimately that you walk through I'd like to solve it. I'd like to solve it for him. I'd like to solve it for his wife and his family. I can't solve it. And that's been difficult to kind of get used to that idea. In fact, I've written a song that we're going to put out on YouTube quite soon that is about, you know, it says, I'd I'd like to stop the world from turning. I'd like to pause it with my prayer. I'd like to turn the clocks to zero, do all I can to keep you here. It's a song to him. And the chorus says, as time is given, time is taken away. The least that we can do is make the most of every day. Because that's what he has begun to do. He said, I've suddenly realised how precious life is and I want to live it to the full in the time that I have. Has there ever been a time then when your own faith has been challenged and you've actually found it hard to hold on to that faith? Yeah, I think for me and probably for most people, it's it's not been a linear thing of, you know, always... You know, always totally trusting in God, always knowing he's there. There have been times when, when I've thought, is, is, is all of this true? Is this actually 
you know, particularly going through difficult times and thinking, you know, is, is this actually, you know, am I deluding myself? I think all of us think this at some time or other. And there was a time when I was a, a young man, I walked far away from God. I, I, and having been brought up as a Christian, you kind of sometimes think, have I just told myself this is the way it is because of the way I've been brought up? I've never lived with a way where I didn't think there was God. And for a, a time in my life, I did walk away and say, OK, well, let's find out whether this is true or not. I'm not going to live as a Christian. I'm just going to do my own thing and see whether actually the whole thing falls apart at that point. The interesting thing for me, that even though it was a, it was a difficult time, was actually I found that I could never really say that God wasn't there. I always had that sense that even when I wasn't living the way I should or the way that he wanted me to, thought he's still there. I still know that he's there. I can't say God is not there. I wonder how that works in the midst of a time we're in at the moment. We're recording this interview just after the Grenville Tower fire disaster. Mm. And I wonder that outpouring that there is of real heartbreak and of despair and, and, and anger too... How do those words speak into that situation when people are looking for comfort, they're looking for answers, but are they going to find any of that in any of the songs that you've written, whether it's Psalm 23 or in mm. Christ Alone? Mm. What does it say into the midst of that situation? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that the songs actually are songs of comfort. I mean, I wouldn't be so kind of arrogant as to say, yes, you know, use this song and it will help you. I, I did see somebody sent me on, I think I saw on Facebook, that there was a, it had actually the backdrop of, of the burnt out tower, and it was a, a church that was singing, it must have been singing outside, and they were singing Psalm 23, the version that I'd, I'd written. And, you know, I, I, I think it's easy for Christians to again go to the reason and go, there's a purpose in this. And I think that can shrink the enormity of the pain of it. I think ultimately what you have to say is, we don't know why but you can find God there in it. He doesn't promise to keep you safe from the things that happen, but he will promise to be with you in all that you walk through. Whatever you think about, whether there's a God or whatever, there seems to be an instinctive response quite often to turn to in the last moment, you know, in that moment to all say a prayer. Well, let's turn to your next reading and the song It's Inspired, and the reading is Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Creation sings the Father's song. He calls the sun to wake the dawn. In round the course of day, till evening falls in crimson rays. His fingerprints and flakes of snow, his breath upon the spinning globe He charts the eagle's flight Commands the newborn baby's cry Tell the one 
So, Stuart, tell me a bit about that reading from Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4 that you've chosen, and, and the song Creation Sings. In recent years, as I've been getting a bit older, I've turned a bit more to running. And so uh, I try and run whenever I can, and it helps to keep me a bit fitter. And uh, it's, I feel really fortunate living in Brighton. We're not far from the Downs, so whenever I can, I get up into the Downs and do some running, or actually I, I go and take my dog out for a walk and just love being out in the country. And um, I find it a transformative experience. I find it a transcendent experience sometimes, actually, to be out in the glory of nature and the glory of creation and, and looking up at the beauty of the sky is really moving. And, you know, I've got quite a few friends who would say, you know, they don't have a Christian faith or anything, but they do find a similar kind of experience. They, they do see it as a spiritual experience. And um, in a sense, it kind of makes sense when you look at this psalm, because actually it does say the heavens declare the glory of God. There is something there that is being spoken. I love that phrase it uses, that it says, day after day they pour forth speech. I love that idea that basically, if you stop and listen, the whole of the wonderful creation that we see is going, he's magnificent. And uh, I did write the song Creation Sings together with, with Keith and his wife Kristen and uh, wanted to express that, the glory of, of who God is through creation. And also, actually, the song goes on to, to talk about the future of creation, because actually creation, you know, you see the beauty of it, but you also see the pain of it as well. And actually, that it's kind of saying creation itself wants to be liberated. Actually, the Bible talks about this, to actually be restored to how it should be, just like we want to be restored to how we should be, because you can see the beauty of who God is in one another, but you also see that marred image that actually we want to be free from all that makes life terrible. But I suppose on a more prosaic note, is it just <laughs> nice to be on your own sometimes? Yes, yes sorry. sorry, I wax eloquent in a very sort of, yes, um, highfalutin way. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the beauty of... Actually, I, I remember um, hearing someone say that actually sometimes when you go into creation, it's very still and you hear the stillness of it. And when you get to a place in yourself where there's a stillness, actually that's the best place to be able to hear God. And is that particularly important for you? Because there you are, recognised around the world as a songwriter. Do you find it quite hard to deal with that celebrity status or how do you manage that? Oh, gosh. Um, it's quite nice that, in a sense, being a hymn writer, people are more aware of the song than they are of you. So it's not like you get recognised in the street, which is quite nice because I think that would be really awful. You know, and they may not even recognise the name. I think people, first and foremost, know the songs and then they might know your name. And so in that sense, it's the best of both worlds in the sense of, you know, being appreciated for what you do. But it's not really, I don't really think of it as celebrity. And how hard do you think it is to be in the public spotlight today? Because I'm thinking at the time when we're recording this programme, Tim Farron has recently yeah. sat down as, as leader of the Liberal Democrats. And he was talking about how he felt he couldn't do his job and reconcile it with his mm. evangelical Christian beliefs. Mm. Do you ever feel a, a tension there? I suppose I'm fortunate in the sense that I'm not in the public spotlight in, in the way that somebody like Tim Farron is because I work mainly, almost exclusively, within the Christian world. Now, obviously, there are lots of different perspectives within the broad range of what Christianity is so that people will have different perspectives on things. So, for example, do you ever find yourself having to defend yourself as an evangelical Christian and 
for example, with attitudes to, to gay Christians, which can come across to some people as uncompromising and unloving. Would you ever find yourself in that position? Yeah, I suppose in a sense I've not found myself in that position. In a sense, I think as I've got older, from being kind of very strong about certain issues, I've found myself not changing... Well, I suppose I am changing what I think in the sense that I am recognising that actually people can hold different positions and, and, and have different perspectives. But there is something more important than what you think about A, B and C. There is actually your attitude of love and compassion and acceptance. And I think where Christianity often is seen to fall down is not in the position it might or might not take in terms of its understanding of what the Bible says or doesn't say, but is in its attitude of exclusiveness or its attitude of lack of acceptance of people. And I think that is unjustifiable to actually not accept people because the fundamental issue is that actually wherever people are coming from, we're called to accept to love and to love unconditionally and to embrace those who are different from us. Whatever those perspectives are, whatever those issues are to do with gender, to do with sexuality, to do with race, to do with political positions, actually there is a calling on us to be as Christ would be to everyone in those. So I think that's where we fall down. And we can debate backwards and forwards about Christian positions on things. But actually, you know, even if we feel we're right, if our attitude isn't right, we're wrong. So let's then have your final reading. And it's um, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 to 19 in the New Testament. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. Stuart, why did you choose that reading? I love this reading, and every time I read it or hear it read, I, I kind of see something new in it and kind of feel like we could talk for ages about it. It's one of those passages that Paul has in his letters where he's just getting so carried away. He's just getting so excited about it. And what I love about this is, you know, in the context we can talk about theology, we can talk about our position on this or position on that. But actually, in a sense, this goes right to the heart of what the gospel is about, which is it's about knowing God's love and allowing it to completely transform us. And, you know, elsewhere in the Bible, it says, I think it's in, in the first epistle of John, it says God is love. It's not just that he's loving, it's that he is love. What about for those people who don't feel loved at all mm. and who don't have an understanding of God's love? Mm. Well, I, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, we all need to, if there's, if there's one thing we all need that we're all looking for, it is actually to be loved and to know a love like that 
to be transformed by it. And, you know, when we come across it, it does transform us, whether that's, you know, the love of, of a parent or, you know, the love of a child that we have or the love of another human being or, you know, love of a partner. Um, they are transformative things. All these are little reflections of a deeper, greater, more wonderful and life-transforming love that we're all intended to know. I, I, obviously, sometimes for some of us, it's more difficult to receive love than others. And, and you know, that depends quite often on, on the circumstances of our upbringing or our experiences. And, and maybe, and, as we've said before, it's difficult if you're standing at the foot of Grenfell Tower to... Yeah talk about the love or to hear you express that love in that way. Yeah, I, and I totally recognise that. I'm not saying this is an easy journey for us to to know and to, to find that love, but to at least see there is that love there. That love is there. It may seem a million miles away, but actually God does the work of bringing that love close to us. Well, let's pick up on that theme of love to finish our conversation today with one more song of yours, How Deep the Father's Love. Could I ask you to just say a little bit to us about that song, which I know is a special one to, to you, and then we'll we'll hear a little bit of it. Sure. Um, yeah, the, uh, this was another song, interestingly, where it took very little effort to write this because I was... Um, I remember this, this happening. It's one of those, those odd things where this is quite early on in, in my writing. I just had an idea for a melody. The melodies came very quickly to me. I wish it happened more often. It happens very, very rarely. Quite often it seems hard work to write a song. But this melody came, and then I was thinking about Christ and thinking about the work of the cross and his love for us and just very simply started writing these words, which, again, you know, came very quickly and I remember playing it for the guy who was who was my mentor Dave Fellingham I played it for him because quite often one of the things that you find as a writer is if a melody comes very easily to you you think I've probably pinched it from somewhere it's gone into the subconscious and I'm just regurgitating it and the fear is that somebody's going to turn around and say well that's exactly the same as this song and then your whole world collapses and you know or you find yourself getting sued, or whatever. And so I kind of felt, and I was playing this for everybody, going, Does this, is this melody familiar to you? And uh, thankfully, uh, even up to this point, nobody's come up and said, oh, yeah, you pinched that from wherever. So, I, and I remember playing the song for Dave Fellingham, and, and I remember him going, when I played that, I'd written the whole thing, the words and everything, and he went, yeah, it's okay. That was it. So I thought, OK, well, I'll try it. You know, it wasn't exactly a ringing endorsement, but I thought, I'll try it anyway, and tried it. And... I'd never written anything like that before. It is kind of hymn-like. I hadn't written anything that felt even remotely like a hymn before that. And again, it was one of those things where actually there just seemed to be some momentum and the song kept growing in terms of being used. And perhaps because it was my hymn-like, that meant it could be used in more traditional churches, churches that, that didn't have worship bands with drums and stuff, but actually just had you know an organ or whatever, and it seemed to work in that context. And so it just grew. So I think, in a sense, the simplicity of expressing... God's love, the simplicity and vulnerability of expressing what would it be like to be standing there in the crowd, finding that actually I was shouting with everybody else, yeah, crucify him, it doesn't matter, just get rid of him. And that's it's really powerful, an awful picture you see in those final hours of Christ's life, of the way that people just turned against him. Well, let's hear that song in just a moment. But for now, Stuart Townend, can I thank you very much for being my guest today on The Word? Thank you very much. 
My pleasure. I'm Alison Hilliard and you've been listening to The Word on Things Unseen, the podcast for people who think there's more to life than the purely material. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk